Hey everyone, this is Adam again. Right after we finished recording our episode, which is coming up in a second, we got offline and got a text from our good friend Brooks saying that uh, Wes Craven had passed away from cancer. Obviously, it's had a huge blow to not only the movie industry, but also the horror genre especially. So stick to the whole episode. And then at the end, uh, we do have a quick in memoriam we want to do just to kind of pay tribute to probably one of the best, if not the best, horror directors of all time. So the episode coming up, and we'll talk to you afterwards. Bored as hell, and I want to get ill. So I go to a place where my homeboys chill. Bella's out there trying to make that dollar. I pulled up in the six. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Bored as Hell podcast. I'm Adam McDonald with Big Shiny Robot. And I am Andy Wilson, a.k.a. Citizen Bot, also a Big Shiny Robot. And we are here in the, the very last little bits of August, and as you know from previous weeks, it's been a pretty uneven month. Um, most movies that have come out have been a bit lower on the quality scale than what we'd hoped for. Uh, today, I mean, this week, uh, yeah, there was some good and there was some bad, uh, but only two movies. So uh, the two we want to talk about are No Escape and We Are Your Friends. I'm going to let Andy take over for No Escape, uh, because that was when you reviewed uh, for Big Shine. Well, give us some information about that, Sure. Uh, no Escape is the story of a family uh, played here by Owen Wilson and Lake Bell. They're an American couple, uh, their kids in tow, relocating from Austin, Texas to an unnamed Southeastern Asian country. Uh, it was filmed on location in Thailand. So that area of the world, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, um, while on their while on their plane, they befriend uh, in the row behind them a rugged, suave Pierce Brosnan uh, who knows a little bit about the country. He says he's been there before, implies that he's going there for sex tourism. Woo-hoo. Ooh, the brothels, the brothels. <laughs> and uh, um, when, when they land, they're in a little bit of a culture shock. Things don't seem to be working as they expected. Uh, he helps them get to their hotel, get settled. And no sooner are they there than all hell breaks loose. Uh, A long-running military dictator uh, for the country has been assassinated. There's been a coup, and uh, people are roaming through the streets, rounding up foreigners and chopping their heads off. Um, It gets really bloody really fast, and uh, as the name implies, uh, they, as a family, have to get uh, the hell on up out of there. Um, so that is the basic premise. Um, this movie is very well done in a lot of ways, very intense. Uh, I spent a lot of the movie with a knot in my stomach, uh, just feeling the tension that they were building, uh, because, you know, they're being followed at, at all points. I mean, it, you can imagine. Yeah, there's, uh, there's no rest in this movie. Once it starts and gets going, like you just, it's a roller coaster till the end. Yeah, I mean it's it's really easy to spot them the the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Owen Wilson in uh, Southeast Asia, uh, who stands you know probably a half a foot taller than most of the people and uh, looks very different than everyone else. Um, so they've got to find a way to escape. It's uh, and that they find that to be very tough. But uh, I mentioned the violence. Um, it is needlessly violent and bloody in a lot of ways. It they didn't have to go to the lengths that they did, uh, including a very trying uh, rape scene. 
uh, to get their point across of the kind of peril that the family was in. I think they could have built the tension in a lot of better ways. Um, and the it just, as you mentioned, Adam, this movie never gives you a chance to breathe. And it, they, they try and take these little breaks and inject humor and family moments where you're supposed to laugh and, and hear their backstory. But I just spent the whole time going, you idiots, they're right behind you. <laughs> Quit talking and yammering and get on out of there. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, the, the tension builds and builds and builds to absolutely nothing. Um, normally there's some sort of a payoff, and this just didn't. So I walked out of the theater uh, with a migraine, and um, that that's kind of how I feel about it. And the, the way that they, the way that they treated, um, the, well, I was going to say the way they treated the Asian characters, but there are no Asian characters. No, uh, there are caricatures and just random people. Uh, so while the, the violence towards, uh, the white Westerners in this movie is played for horror and shock value, um, the the native uh, whoever Thai Cambodian lady I, I think they kind of agree with dispatched with, yeah yeah they're dispatched with uh, you know no forethought whatsoever and it's it's just it leaves you thinking like uh, only the Western American lives are really what matters here yeah I think we we were joking afterwards that the the hashtag for this movie should be only white lives matter yeah. Um, yeah, you, you brought some really good points. It's As far as the, the directing and cinematography, great parts. I mean, they, he uh, does a great job. Um, John Eric Dowdle was the director. Uh, it's fantastic. I mean, he you know brings you in. Uh, it's it's gorgeous to look at. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of tension built up. Um, but it, it, it's kind of funny. I was just remembering in a review, and what we talked about as well was that if this had been a zombie movie, it would have been perfect because – that's what it felt like. It felt like you were watching a horror movie and, you know, you mentioned that you're killing off the Asian characters. It was like Asian whack-a-mole. I mean, <laughs> there was there was no attempt to even, you know, talk about any kind of character development because the bad guy was just a faceless person with a gun. Um, and even as Pierce Brosnan mentioned, you know, two-thirds of the way through the movie, uh, it's their fault for what's happening. You know, there was it was the American and the, and the UK government going over there and starting this water project that started this coup and got the whole ball rolling. So of course these people are upset because, you know, we're coming over there to pretty much bankrupt their company or their country. Yeah. So it's the, the movie just grinds to a complete halt too. When Pierce Brosnan, James Bond himself goes on like a, a minute 90 second rant about the perils of Western interventionism and, Oh, what a fool I've been and how we started this war. And, Mm -hmm. Oh, you, these evil corporations that run our government that pay my salary that it just it falls really flat and what could have been a very important and deft message about how american imperialism it is becomes the world just yeah it it's beyond heavy-handed it makes heavy-handed movies look uh look very deft by comparison yeah it, it's so yeah the, the Pierce Brosnan character you know, pops up in the first five minutes of the movie, and you don't see him again until 
you know, Deus Ex Machina comes in and, and saves the day at a yep. brothel, nonetheless. Takes, that's the only safe place is the brothel. Of course. Um, and, yeah, they, you mentioned, like, they, they try to solve every so often to create these little family moments. Uh, I'm sorry, but if there's someone with a gun on your, tra- on your trail or a tank, GTFO, you're not going to sit there and, like, let's give everyone hugs. And um, Owen Wilson, you just, you're not a leading action star. Uh, you spent half the movie acting like you were in a Wes Anderson film. And the other half, someone needs to teach him that whispering's not acting. Uh, Lake Bell was perfectly fine. I think she was the best character of all of them. I loved Lake Bell, yeah. Yeah. Right. I, the kids, though, those little kids, I, I know the whole point was to have this family in peril and make you want to connect with them. Like, oh, my God, these poor little girls. I wanted to just, I was like, shoot them. Just get them out, out of the way. <laughs> like, when there's men chasing you with guns, you don't pay any attention to your daughter who's crying because she left her stuffed animal on the floor. I'm sorry, sweetie, the stuffed animal doesn't matter. And, oh, I just... They were just they were grading. Uh, I ugh, no, just if it would have been a horror movie, uh, if it would have done things differently, it could have been really cool. Uh, it ends up just being casually racist and is as intense as some parts are, just forgettably boring. Um, yeah, I'm at a three. I, it just it wasn't good for me. Yeah, I I went with a four. Um, and the only difference really for me was Lake Bell who. I just continue to love anybody who has not seen her movie in a world about the world of uh, trailer voiceovers. Go check that out. Love you, Lake Bell. You're awesome. <laughs> you are the only good thing in this movie. Yes. <laughs> you're, you're responsible for my three stars. Yep. Um, so the other big release, and actually, if we're looking at box office numbers, it was a. It, I think it now holds the record as the worst opening uh, for any movie that opened in over 2,000 theaters. So wow. Yeah, uh, We Are Your Friends. It's the Zac Efron wants to be a DJ movie. Now, I'll tell you this, go from the trailers I saw, um, the, the TV spots, everything about this movie just screamed suck. I, I had no desire to see it. I was like, well, you know, that's that's one of the things is like, you know, we go see bad movies so you don't have to. Um, and I know I'm in the minority in this, but I, I walked out, you know, in spite of myself enjoying it. Um, the, the plot line's not that deep. I said Zac Efron, he's a wannabe DJ. He and his friends uh, promote this local club, and he guest DJs there every so often. Uh, well, while he's out back smoking weed, he runs into James Reed, who's played by Wes Bentley, and Wes Bentley's always good. Meets this random stranger, they share some drugs and go to a party, because I guess that's what you do in Hollywood. So they go to this party, the next day, Cole wakes up at Reed's house, and runs into his assistant slash girlfriend, Sophie, who is the wonderful uh, Emily Ratajkowski of Gone Girl. So if you saw that movie, you know how slinky she, uh, let me see what she was over there. Anyways, the sparks kind of fly between the two of them. And, you know, the kind of budding romance develops under uh, Reed's nose. He takes Cole under his wing and basically says, look, you need to make yourself um, your first big track. You know, your all your music, your the stuff you give me, it's just the same old electronic recordings and sounds and something original. Um, he tells him, which is in the trailer, stop being an imitation and find your signature. So he challenges him to go out and kind of, you know, record, you know, real sounds and, and create his you know first big breakout hit. And it kind of goes on from there. I mean, the, the plots, there really isn't much in the way of the plot. It's just one person kind of finding out how life's supposed to go, um, learning lessons and, Kind of, eh, I guess you really can't say growing up because 
the, the characters, the movie ends almost where it begins. You know, it's, it's months later, um, things have changed, people have, have died, um, some lessons were learned. But what was kind of cool about it was, uh, you know, the, the big payoff in the end, you know, the, when the credits roll wasn't that, you know, Zac Efron's character was now this, you know, you know, massively wealthy and popular DJ. You know, he had one good song that people seemed to like a lot. But he learned, he like actually gained wisdom. And so in that sense, it's kind of a, of a coming of age story, even though the characters are already in their 20s and, you know, doing things like drugs and promiscuous, you know, sleeping around with people that maybe isn't really, fr- you know, smiled upon the society, but they became better people from the experiences they had. Um, Zac Efron is great in it. I mean, he's really growing up and to be a decent actor. Uh, he's not the, the sugary sweet kid from High School Musical, and he's definitely not the douchebag kind of kid frat boy from Neighbors, so he was great in it. Uh, of course, like I said, Wes Bentley is always good in everything he does. I, I will caution you, though, if you do not like electronic dance music, to stay the hell away from this one, because it's the whole soundtrack is that. If you do like it, it's got a great soundtrack. It's a lot of fun. Um, I don't think it deserves the hate it's getting. I think people went in wanting to hate it, because that's what they were expecting. Uh, so I ended up with a 7 out of 10. It was, it was pretty fun. Yeah, the the movie studios here in Austin trolled me. And they did the screenings for We Are Your Friends and No Escape literally in the same theater across from each other. And (laughs) so we had to choose one or the other. And I'd already said yes to uh, No Escape. And we actually gave out passes to it here in Austin. So I was like, well, I really got to do that. Um, I like Zac Efron. And in a way, this sounds a little bit like another underappreciated movie he was in uh me and orson wells uh, mm-hmm. where it, yeah it is and it's also a coming of age story about you know he's a musician and an actor and trying to come up and at the end he hasn't really learned any lessons he hasn't become great because the movie was about orson wells not him. yeah uh but yeah that was that was fun um i i think i'm gonna have to check this one out on your recommendation <clears throat> yeah well the way it's going um, it'll either one be in dollar theaters or out on DVD within a month. So, I mean, there's, uh, I wouldn't, you know, if, if you really love Zac Efron and you love that kind of music, by all means, oh, check you know it out. I do. <laughs> uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's doing so badly that I, I don't see it being in theaters much longer. Um, not that there's that much other really high end stuff coming out recently in the next couple of weeks. It's still a pretty slow month. Um, but yeah, it's, it doesn't deserve the hate it's getting. Uh, it is predictable. I mean, the moment the movie starts, you know where it's going to end. You know, you even know who's going, you know, who's going to die, who's who's going to do this, what's going to happen here. Um, so it's very predictable. But I mean, it's not done in a bad way. I mean, there's some really, really I forgot really good uh, effects that they do. So uh, the director was Max Joseph. He also wrote it. He's mostly well known for being involved in co-hosting the MTV series Catfish. Uh, but there's a really, he has some amazing cinematography in it where uh, when they go, when Reed and Carter first meet for the first time and go to this party, um, they end up doing some, they end up doing PCP and he doesn't know he did it. So there's all art gallery and, you know, Zach Efron's just like, characters freaking out because he's walking around and, you know, the eyes and all the paintings are like looking at him and he'd look over and they go back to be normal. So it was almost like when you go to Disneyland near the Haunted Mansion, those, you know, those, uh, the bus kind of follow you around but it's animated to make the audience kind of experience he is. And then all of a sudden when he finds out what happens, 
the paintings kind of start to melt like crayons, and the ink goes over, hits everyone, and turns them into um, animated versions of themselves. So they're this really crazy art gallery. Everyone's turned into a cartoon and dancing, and you know the, the music's playing, and the words are actually popping up on the screen. Um, so it was really, really cool. I wish they would have used that more or used a similar kind of style because that kind of trick was only used twice in the movie. It really does stand out when it happens, so maybe that's why they wanted to go with kind of the less is more idea, but uh, visually, it's a stunning, it's great to watch. The animation style is awesome. Um, I'll be interested to see what he does next. So. Well, that's really interesting. That sounds a lot like whenever I listen to a Skrillex record, so. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, um, you know, speaking of music, you know, we are your friends. The whole, the whole background of having, of the, of the soundtrack and the songs, it's very integral to the plot and um, the movie itself. And you can kind of see how the characters evolve and change as through the music that's playing in the background. So, uh, Andy and I were just thinking about something we could recommend this week with so many, so few movies out, and we were deciding, you know, movies that have really influential soundtracks on the actual movie itself. Uh, we decided we couldn't go with any kind of musical because. That's the whole point of the musical is to have songs sung through to move the plot along. Uh, we also disqualified Quentin Tarantino movies because that'd just be too easy. I mean, we could sit here, we could sit here and have about twenty podcasts just about the music of Tarantino alone. Um, but we did come up with two movies, uh, and Andy, you end up going with which one was it again? Uh, I went with the Coen Brothers' "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou." Uh, yes. They're they're two thousand. Uh, adaptation somewhat of Homer's The Odyssey about George Clooney as uh, a a man escaped from prison with Don Turturro and Tim Blake Nelson uh, oh, chained right. him. And so they escape from prison and uh, he's trying to make it home uh, to stop his wife from getting married and along the way they, uh, they face many different things. Uh, one of which is uh, on their way, they meet uh, they meet a young man who sold his soul at the crossroads to learn how to play guitar, and so to make some money, they go in and record an album, uh, which is uh, "I'm a Man of Constant Sorrow." It becomes a hit in the Depression era South, and uh, a and propels them to. Uh, a little bit of fame, which uh, they then use uh, to their advantage by the end of the movie. Um, but it's all about the journey, not the destination, literally. And along the journey, uh, this movie is punctuated by just some of the best music out there. I mentioned I'm a man of constant sorrow, but um, mm -hmm. I I don't like bluegrass music in general. I'm not really a fan of country. Uh, I do like a little bit of it, but um, this movie, I love this soundtrack and, uh, the way that they're able to bring things in that, uh, both fit very tonally with what the Coen brothers are doing mm -hmm. visually and also move the story along. So, uh, they, they come upon a group of people, uh, who are supposed to be like the Lotus Eaters from Homer's Odyssey. Um, and they're all being baptized in the river and uh, they start singing uh, I go down to the river to pray and uh, it's 
it's great. Um, there. I believe uh, it was it was Alison Krauss did that, didn't she? Yeah, Alison Krauss did that. Alison Krauss was on two or three of the different songs here, mm-hmm. and and many of her many of her stable of backup musicians. Um, her main guitar player, whose name escapes me, is actually uh, the guy who does George Clooney's singing in the movie. Uh, in I'm a Man of Constant Sorrow. Uh, so um, there's there's just some other great things. They, uh, you are my sunshine was a uh, uh, was a song that was popular then. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Primary Colors with John Travolta, uh, you know as he goes around campaigning, he he always campaigns with You Are My Sunshine and talks about it being his favorite uh, his favorite song written by a Southern governor. So whether that's true or not, um, that was immediately something. I'm like, oh, it's You're My Sunshine in another movie. Um, just lots of great music. And it it took what would have been a, a great movie and elevated it to uh, just the next level. Um, the songs that they're singing while they're out in the on the work line, Paul Lazarus. Uh, to the song that the hangman, or he's not the hangman, I guess, but, or is he? Uh, that singing is they're, they're about to be executed for their I think family. it's a hangman, yeah. yeah I, I, I haven't watched the movie in forever, but it's, it, it is one of my, I, I could easily say it's my top 10 films of all time. Yeah, I love that movie. The, the summer of 2001, after that came out on DVD, uh, literally that movie played at least once every 24 hours in my apartment. Either I or one of my roommates watched it. And it was one of those things where it's like, if someone had it on, it was just on in the background and like, you go make lunch, sit down and watch it for 10 minutes and then walk away. And it was, it, it was like the, the soundtrack of that time, but it was also uh, a movie that we Mm -hmm. constantly watched and, uh, really sticks with you. So, um, yeah, I, I love that soundtrack and it really took that movie to the next level <clears throat> yeah it's uh it, it's one of those it's like, like you mentioned it's it's a fantastic film i mean the coen brothers doing an amazing job but the addition of that you don't want to say the music is the soul of that movie yeah because as much as there's there's so much going on you've got you know it, it's it's a brilliant retelling of the alien the odyssey but uh it really it, it's one of those things where that the music is what ties it all together uh and elevates it from just a great movie to a, a classic. So yeah. uh, my movie, yeah, it's a little bit more predictable. <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, I went with Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, I, I don't think I need to spend too much time jumping in to explain the plot because it was one. It was the biggest movie of last year, so I'm pretty sure everyone's seen it. If you haven't, it's fantastic. Go and get it. Um, but, you know, the reason why the, the music in that is so important is, you know, the story of Peter Quill, Star-Lord, you know, being kidnapped from Earth as a young kid. Um, and so the music he has on his, you know, awesome mixtape volume one, it does two purposes. One, it's his last tie to Earth. So all these, these songs are the only thing that kind of lets him keep his humanity because it's all that ties him back to this planet that he hasn't seen for decades. Um, and then two, it's the last remembrance of his mother who, who passes away in the opening minutes of the movie so these combine just to, to really form his character. And when you, know, when you listen to the songs uh, throughout it, even when they're doing like a movie montage to set up and they're going to go fight Ronin uh, and they're playing Cherry Bomb by the Runaways or, uh, 
you know, hooked on a feeling, uh, or you know, just pretty much everything on there. It it perfectly sets every single scene up, uh, and it really shows uh, who Peter Quill is because he's been molded by this music his whole life. So even though it's only the same, you know, 13 songs he's been listening to for 30 years or 20 years, um, it explains his personality and who he is. And what's really interesting about this uh, movie was that you know James Gunn, who if you haven't seen his previous work, I mean, check him out. I mean, when they said James Gunn was doing Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, I was ecstatic because I love, he, you know, he helped write some stuff for Troma. He did Slither, which is to say one of the funniest horror movies ever made. Uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> Such a fantastic and horror, it's, it's, it's a bad B-movie horror movie, but it knows that, so it's having fun. It's basically kind of sending off the entire genre. Uh, so when I heard he was involved, I was like, really happy for it. And it's interesting because he actually designed and wrote a lot of the scenes based on the music he was going to be playing in that scene. So before, you know, with the opening sequence with uh, Gotta Get Your Love, uh, originally it was going to be for Hooked on a Feeling, and that got moved over to the, the prison area, or the prison scene. But, so if you look and see how the, the, the shots are choreographed, how the actors are doing and saying certain things are moving, uh, it's because they were working to the soundtrack first and not so much the movie. So it's kind of a backwards take of how they do movies. Most times they'll write it, shoot it, and then score it afterwards. Uh, but because the music was so important, um, they, I mean, they had it playing on the set the whole time. In fact, uh, Chris Pratt, the whole time he was there, was listening to the awesome mixtape, you know, the whole, you know, the whole shooting thing. So I'm sure he's pretty sick and tired of those songs. But it was a movie that was fully based and kind of raised on the foundation of the soundtrack, which, like I said, is, is very rare for a movie nowadays. So. Uh, Again, it's, it's, it's all you know, classic 70s and 80s music, so it's it's really, really good music. Um, but because that it was it was the foundation of this film and not the other way around, uh, that kind of gets it on my list. And what's really interesting, I, I forgot about this, was that on uh, Record Store Day last year, Disney actually released The Awesome Mix Volume 1 on cassette. It was the first time they had released a soundtrack or a cassette at all on cassette since 2003. So it's kind of funny that... Uh, a movie about a talking raccoon in a tree would have them release their first cassette album in over 10 years. Yeah, that it was just such a cool soundtrack. I, the moment I was sold on Guardians of the Galaxy um, was that first opening sequence. Mm -hmm. And as he's walking in uh, on, on Morag and he, he puts on that Walkman and it goes... And he starts dancing, <laughs> and the first thing he goes, "Hey!" And the like big thing, the Guardians of the mm -hmm. Galaxy splashes across, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, this movie is going to be great! <laughs> <laughs> what is this? This is awesome!" Um, that that soundtrack meant so much to me when it came out um, because. Uh, some of the songs ended up being like really, really personal and uh, hard hitting. Like I had a really rough time about uh, the two week span before Guardians came out. Um, just a ton of really, really stressful things at work. And uh, I was working like 70 hour weeks and it was super high pressure. And so I like sat in my car listening to ooh child things are gonna get easier over and, over. <laughs> and it's just like okay things are gonna be okay it's gonna yeah. be all right 
I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. We're we're gonna be all right. And then um, uh, and then I saw the movie, and uh, you know that ended up being the song that saves the galaxy. He uh, you know, challenges Roman to a dance off. So that that's one of my go to karaoke songs now at this point. Um, because it just and you bring it down hard and someday yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll never I'll never forget. It was um uh, at FanX 2014. It was after it was the, the last day, so the, the thing was all broken down. Uh, and all of us went over to, oh, I can't remember the name of the bar, but it was uh, me, Eddie, Jeremiah, like all the Geek Show guys were there. So, like, you know, uh, Shannon, Jimmy, Jeff was with us still, Lee and Carrie. And we were out on the patio, and we went to, like, the secondary bar area, and I had a jukebox out there. And all of a sudden, uh, and this is before the movie had come out, we'd only really seen the the first uh, trailer, which had Hooked on a Feeling. And Maya runs over to us with this gleam in his eye, like, hey guys, guess what? We're like, what? And all of a sudden we hear the ooga We all got in a circle and I, we all just took over that bar and all of us just, you know, did our own impromptu karaoke of the whole song. And it was, it, it was just, it was an incredibly fun memory. And I can't think of the last time that a movie, that a movie soundtrack at least, brought out just a sense of that unfettered joy in people. I mean, because, you know, the, the sound, you know, now we're all familiar with the songs, but I think before that, when we heard the soundtrack, or you heard the, on the whatever, you know, you recognized them, but it wasn't like, you're like, oh crap, I know that song, where's it from? Yeah. And of course, now we, it's now part of the, the, you know, the whole, the general public's consciousness, but, um, so yeah, just really good songs, just it, like the movies that, like, you know, when I got out of that movie, I had the biggest smile on my face because it was just, it was just full of joy. And that's what that, that soundtrack is for me is just really, really just a happy, joyous thing. So like you mentioned when you were, you know, before the movie came out and you were in your car, it's, you know, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. It's one of those soundtracks you can put on that's going to make your day better because yeah. you can't help but sing along and smile with them. So with, with two exceptions, I okay. to this day cannot stand the Pina Colada song <laughs> or or 10 cc i'm not in love it's like those two so- just no that was it's okay i i i i realize their place in the movie and i respect it but i skip those songs because i'm like no still hate them nope well, what's really funny is everyone knows the pina colada song but it wasn't until this movie came out that i actually had the soundtrack and sat down and listened to the lyrics it's a horrible song it's about it infidelity. Song. i had i had yeah. no clue about that i always thought it was just oh yeah pina coladas no, it's about people cheating on each other with each other. With each other. Well, and that's why that was the the first I didn't the first reference I ever had to that song was in Shrek, believe it or not. I didn't know about that song and they're like talking about the princesses that that he's going to uh uh that he could date and Princess Fiona's like she likes piña coladas and taking walks in the rain and I'm like what the heck? And my stepmom's <laughs> like, oh, that's a movie, or that's a song reference. That's a song from the 70s. And I, like, went and searched it out, and I'm like, that's a terrible song. What I know. Is, what like, is that? <clears throat> yeah, it's always fun to kind of go back and, like, you know, because half the time when songs are on in the car or you're, you're driving, and you know, the, you know the songs you've heard a million times, but you never actually sat and thought about what it's saying. And, uh, like, a big one was uh, Pumped Up Kicks by Foster the People. Dude, it was everywhere, and it was catching, you're singing along. And then you go back and realize it's about a school shooting. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's this upbeat, happy song about, you know, well, you know, it's from the point of view of the shooter. <laughs> so 
So I think it's, you know, music is great because it really, you know, not only does it set the mood, it can be, you know, it is a, it can become the soundtrack of your own life. Uh, but it's, it's easy to kind of gloss over and not realize what's happening or what's taking place because it's catchy and you're humming along. Well, if you think about it, Hooked on a Feeling, the way it was used in Guardians of the Galaxy, that's a pretty horrific scene if you think about it. Oh, no, it's horrible. It's been brutalized going into jail, but they're playing Hooked on a Feeling. And it's just like, oh, that was terrible. Uh, And if they hadn't lightened it up right there, that movie would have gotten really dark really fast. Yeah. And I think that's that's the point. Like, you know, it's you can have, you know, a really horrible scene, and if you have the right kind of mood behind, like the mood with the music over it, uh, it can change the how you feel about what's happening on the screen. So you can kind of like it's you know a spoonful of sugar with your medicine. You can accept it easier because you've got some kind of fun to go along with it. So, um, so hopefully you've seen both those movies. Uh, if you haven't, just go out and buy them. I mean, you. Can, Guardians is priced at twenty bucks, but I know you can get Over the Rock Thou probably for five bucks at Walmart or Best Buy. So yeah, um, definitely check them out. They're really good, not just for the, the music, but also um, just filmmaking in general. They're fantastic movies. So um, that's about all we have for you this week. So uh, look forward to talking to you uh, next Monday. Uh, really slow week again. We're still in the you know the, the dumping ground. So uh, we have a Walk in the Woods, which is the Robert Redford, Nick Nolte kind of action adventure comedy, which looks kind of interesting. It could be fun. Um, and then the Transporter Refueled, which we're not screening up here. So uh, anytime they decide not to screen a movie, it's kind of, it's foreboding. We'll just say that. So uh, I don't know if they're doing it in Austin, but I know they're not doing it up here. So I'm not, I'm not getting to see it. I am getting to see a walk in the woods. I'm excited about it just because it's like, hey, two old guys are going to go camping and they shouldn't, they have no business being out in the wilderness together. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. So, I mean, it could, it could be fun. I mean, it looks interesting. Uh, it's got Emma Thompson, and she's always great. So, um, hopefully, we'll be back here a week from now uh, spouting the, the wonders of Walk in the Woods. <laughs> so, I hope it's good. So. Yeah. All right, Andy, go ahead and take us out. Oh, that Owen Wilson. So hot right now. So hot. <laughs> Hail Satan, and have a lovely afternoon. Gas tripping, but it's alright. Homie scored a key, he's gonna fly. Punk ass fly. Alright, everyone, uh, it's Adam and Andy again, and we are also joined by my husband, Eddie Warfield. Hey! Uh, so, like we said at the beginning of the episode, uh, we did unfortunately lose Wes Craven today. He was, uh, you know, in his late 70s. 76. 76. Um, he passed away of, of cancer, unfortunately. Um, and he was, you know, to, to call him a legend among filmmakers and also horror films is, is almost a disservice to what he's done. I mean, he's invented so many genres and just, you know, taken the horror genre and just reinvented it so many times and made it what it is today. Um, so we just want to spend a couple minutes just kind of talking about some of his movies he's done, maybe our favorite films, and just kind of some cool memories of a really awesome director. Now I didn't even know he was sick. Did did you I didn't know either. I didn't know either. I didn't know that he was sick. This was just a huge shock to me, like out of left field, and it's like, whoa, Wes Craven. That is that's huge. And and when I saw that, I'm like, ah, we just finished recording, and 
uh, we we need to get back and talk. But it, it's been kind of nice. We had a little bit of a break because I mean we've been talking about it nonstop. We were we just were hanging out with everyone at Geek Show Movie Night. Uh, you know, ironically watching bad horror movies, and uh, we it was the topic of discussion the whole time. So we've had a chance to kind of reflect and think about it. Uh, but I do want to let Eddie talk a bit because as much as I love horror movies, he is the horror movie fanatic. Um, so you know, give us some background on Wes Craven and what he's done. Um, Wes Craven has been called the master of horror, um, and it's really for a good reason. Wes Craven's first film, one of his earliest films, is Last House on the Left, the original, yeah. which is a movie that I have watched once and will never watch again because it was <laughs> so disturbing and terrifying yeah. that I just don't want to watch it ever again. It, it was brutal. He, after that, he followed that up with The Hills Have Eyes, another like really like gritty, deep, scary, 70s, crazy horror film. Mm-hmm. And then in the 80s, he reinvented the slasher film with Nightmare on Elm Elm Street. That genre was dying. And he came up with this character of Freddy Krueger and brought the whole thing back to life. And then did it again in the 90s with Kevin Williamson with Scream. Yeah. Like, that was my childhood. Like, Freddy and Jason. Like, I I was, what, six years old when, uh, when Nightmare on Elm Street came out? Mm-hmm. still knew them like that was just that was just uh, i like my kids are really into five nights at freddy's right now and i'm like that that's what this is it's like reached that level of cultural salience and see for for me growing up i was you know my, my parents i was the first born five nights were... at freddy's is a little different it's animatronic <laughs> it's still so creepy as hell uh <laughs> but you know growing up i was i wasn't allowed to watch a lot of horror movies just because the environment and whatever that is but uh, I started my first job was a blockbuster, and even then, I, I wouldn't watch the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. I've watched them a million times now, and for the most part, you know, with the exception of uh, the original one and the New Nightmare, they're pretty campy and funny. They kind of made Freddy into like the, you know, this is prime time, bitch, kind of thing. <laughs> but I wouldn't watch them because he scared the hell out of me. I still remember being a little kid at, um, you know, walking around like the, the movie rental area, like at Albertsons or wherever. And seeing that, and I wouldn't even look at the back of the cover because it just, that character freaked me out so much. Um, and like Eddie said, you know, John Carpenter did Halloween, which, you know, aside from Psycho, you could say invented the slasher genre. And then there were so many just knockoffs and, you know, it was a dime a dozen. People were just getting worn out on these movies. And Wes Craven stepped in and made them new again and got made them scary. I and mean, go back, watch it. If you haven't seen it again, and you really should, if you know, uh, especially in light of his passing. A Nightmare on Elm Street's scary. Yeah, it's a scary idea. And it got passed around and no one wanted it. No one thought the idea of this thing happening in your dreams, like, would be scary. And Wes Craven was like, no, this is scary. And finally got New Line to pick it up. And it made New Line cinema. That's why we had New Line. It was the house that Freddie built. Wes Craven made that studio. Yeah, there's a really, uh, it, it covers the whole film franchise, but uh, the, a documentary called Never Sleep Again. Uh, and it, it, the first couple of movies, it's, it's interviewing Wes Craven a lot and showing that. But if you haven't seen that and you love documentary, because it's a really cool way to see how this, this character came it to life. It is really cool. Fair warning, it's three hours long. Yeah, it's, it's a long, <laughs> <laughs> it's a long movie. Um, 
But like you said again, you know, in the nineties we had the same problem where slasher films and horror they in general were dying. Were dying and Even Wes Craven in ninety four released New Nightmare, which was him coming back to the Freddy Krueger series. He was I wrote this script, I'm coming back, I'm going to direct I'm going to direct it, and it was this crazy idea of what if, since we're not doing Freddy Krueger movies anymore, that it unleashes him in the real world? Because we were telling the story of this demon, and it kept him at bay, but now that everyone's forgotten him, he's suddenly real, and starts attacking, like, the original actors from the first movie. Yeah. yeah. And it's fantastic. And it's, it's so funny. kind because... of flops, and... There was another Halloween movie, Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers from Miramax, and that flopped. And then in 1996, Miramax released Scream, and it brought it all back. And then in the late 90s, we suddenly had slasher movies again, and they were popular. Yeah, it's so crazy because, like, Scream and New Nightmare are really the only Wes Craven movies that I really uh, have, like, sat down and watched intentively and like know them well but it was they're they're so i mean it's the beginning of like meta contextual and self-aware horror that like they know exactly what they're doing and it was such a great take like especially when scream came out and they're like here here are the rules for the movie and here's exactly what's going to happen and they tell you exactly what's going to go on and I think that has informed an entire generation of filmmaking, not just horror, but we talk about the rules for uh, genre TV shows and for superhero films. And mm-hmm. we understand that there's these series of tropes, but I think we understand that those exist because filmmakers like Wes Craven put those out there and said, look, these are the these are the things that we do. This is our process. And we're letting you in on them so that we can all we can all laugh at them and understand them, but also be really scared and on the edge of our seat. Like I didn't know through the whole thing of Scream, like what was going on. That was really well done. And um, you know, the series continued to get a little bit more silly as time went on. But that's that's any that's inevitable yeah. with horror films that I kind of just look at any long running series and with very few exceptions the second third and fourth sequels become campier become stupider um, and that's it and that's what's great about I stand by the screams yeah. I think all four of them are good my my favorite thing with scream is in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back when they're trying yeah. to scream. They're trying to raid Miramax, and uh, on the, they're on the tour. They're on the studio tour, and they see Courtney Cox, and they call her Connie Chung and say that she's a bitch. <laughs> and and uh, they go in, and uh, they're trying to rescue their monkey, and uh, and it's Wes Craven who is acting in in uh, Jay and Silent Bob, and they're yeah. Uh, you're talking about Jay and Silent Bob, and I'm. Yeah. Going- Scream three, together. Yeah, well, they do kind of go together because Muse and Smith were in Scream three, and that was yeah, as Jay and Silent Bob. Yeah, and and so it's it's, there's that great like crossover moment, and they're sitting there and like uh, 
it's not even Courtney Cox. It's what's her name from 90210. And she pulls the mask off Killface and it's the monkey. And she's like, God damn it. <laughs> and just, like, <laughs> Wes Craven's over there like counting money. And um, just like, and yeah. I just pulled up uh, his IMDb and I, I forgot about some movies he did. Like I, he did Swamp Thing. Yeah. He, he did uh, The Twilight Zone, which again, it's a, it's a fun classic movie. And I didn't realize that in 2006 he did Paris Jet to May, which is a completely different movie than you'd ever expect a horror master to do. Um, in 99, he did uh, Music of the Heart, mm-hmm. which he got to direct Meryl Streep in. It's about a, a music teacher. Yeah, music teacher. She's a, she's a professor. She teaches symphony. So, but yeah, it's, 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 it is a huge loss because, I mean, he did so much and, and did... And, like we said, reinvented and kept on changing up the genre. And like I mentioned, uh, if you saw the, our post on our Facebook a couple days ago, um, I've been playing Until Dawn, which is basically you're living a horror movie. It's a game on the PS4. And it's really, what's so fun about it, especially for horror movie fans, is that the cinematography of the game and the way it's shot and things that are done, you've seen time and again in these horror movies. And there's moments in the game where, like, that's a West Craven shot. Like, you can tell by the way he they set it up that that was something that he invented and did. So, um yeah, overall, it's, it's, it's a, you know it's a sad day for for film lovers, especially the genre lovers. Um, so I again, if you if you haven't checked out the screen movies or maybe some Nightmare on Elm Street or haven't watched them in a while, go back and look at them again. We're probably gonna put one on in a minute when we get done here. But if you want to be brutalized, turn on Last House on the Left or Hills Have Eyes. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. You think the remake of The Hills Have Eyes is bad? The the originals just as out there yeah so uh, again sad day for all of us but um you know mr craven wherever you are thank you very much for what you've done for us uh we've got a lot of enjoyable movies out of your career and you you were fantastic yep you'll be missed you will thanks wes thanks wes and everyone hope you have a good week and um like we said we will talk to you next monday